This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'd like to welcome uh, Don Kilburn, who is the CEO of uh, University of Massachusetts Online. Um, Don, you've had a very interesting life, both working in universities and in the corporate world, but in your own words, Tell us about your journey uh, to where you are now and some of the sort of the highlights. Well, thanks, Drew. This is it's nice to see you today and thank you for having me. Um, I guess I've always been a fairly non-traditional learner and um, have had a variety of interests. And, you know, throughout my career, I haven't had a particular straight line at times. Um, I graduated from college. I, I was uh, a musician and an athlete and, uh, I decided to pursue that for a while before taking any number of jobs and eventually deciding that it was probably time to, uh, to settle down and do something. And I took a job with Xerox and um, they sh shipped me off to a, a division that had educational publishing in it. And that was kind of the beginning of my, of my journey into, into education. And um, I worked with successive companies, including Prentice Hall and Simon & Schuster and then Viacom and Paramount. I ended up working with Pearson uh, about 1998, where I had uh, I was primarily in the higher ed sector initially, and I um, worked in a number of executive positions running different divisions. And then someone thought I did a good job and uh, gave me multiple divisions in the K-12 space and technology. And eventually, over some period of time, I started running uh, the entire Pearson North America operation, which at the time was probably the largest education company in the world and, and did that for three, four years. And, uh, and then decided that I wanted to, I got a call from the governor um, and the president of the University of Massachusetts and asking, did I want to do something um, to, to, I guess, give back in a way. And their idea was that how do we actually, we're not meeting the needs of working adults and degree completers out of the university system. How do we create a new educational system that will capture these learners and provide them opportunities um, that they wouldn't have from a university whose you know primary mission is to serve those people? So I've been essentially doing that for the last five years, um, culminating in an acquisition of a, a brand new college for the University of Massachusetts in California, which we renamed University of Massachusetts Global. And now we are setting about to serve those working adults that I believe are um, are kind of underserved by on-campus programs and on-ground campus uh, programs. And we're, we're trying to help people advance their lives through learning because it does make, it changes people's lives and it changes their family trajectory when they can actually, you know, attain a skill or a degree. And there's so many things that require these kind of, um, you know, uh, degrees or certificates in order to advance in your career. And we're we're happy to be, you know, providing, hoping, providing that, providing opportunity and access around that. So, Don, just picking up on something you said about being an athlete and a musician, what was your instrument and what was your sport? Um, I was actually a college basketball player, which is, if you saw me, I'm five foot ten. You would, you'd say you must have been pretty tenacious because you're short. Um, and uh, I played guitar and I played little drums and uh, played at various bands in the Midwest after I graduated. Um, 
much of the chagrin to my parents, I, I got into law school and I said, no, nah, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to go join a band and then did that for a while because it just seemed like a better thing to do at the time. And um, it seemed to have worked out okay. So when you think about being a basketball player and, and clearly a decent one and then a musician um, in terms of popular music, what, what did you take from, you know, having to learn an instrument, having to play a game that you took with you later in life, both in terms of uh, corporate life, but also um, now working in, in, a, in a university? Yeah, I, I, I have been accused of having excessive grit at times. Um, I, you know, I, I learned early on that if you wanted to um, get better at something, that most people aren't naturally good at it that you had to really work at it and you really had to have a passion about things if you wanted to get good at, at better at something. And so I learned that um, a lot of problems, um, you could work a lot of problems and you could work a lot of issues and a lot of things. And if you worked them hard enough, you were probably gonna get a better, you may not get the right outcome, you might get the outcome you want, but you were gonna get a better outcome than if you, than if you didn't. And um, I was always, a little bit of an out-of-the-box thinker. I mean, one of the reasons I got this job at Xerox is I took this test and they said, you think strangely. And so <laughs> I'm not sure that was a compliment, um, but I got into some special program as a result of that. And, you know, I, I just, I just, you know, continue to kind of grind away at things. Um, and that was true of learning to play the guitar. That was true of, um, of uh, playing basketball. I didn't learn to swim until I was 29. I, I bought a book and I started going to a local pool and reading the book about how to swim. And, and I grinded that out for a full year until I got to about a half a mile or so. And so, I don't know, it's just, um, and I, you know, I, I seem to have, have that, I mean, maybe it's competitive spirit. Maybe it's just a, a, a learned behavior that if you continue to work at something really hard, you, you're going to get the best out of yourself. You may not, you may not never be good, but you're going to be better than you were without doing that. Uh, that takes a lot of courage and grit to learn to swim at 29. But there must be many years beforehand where you didn't go near water. Exactly. Um, it, it actually took quite a bit of ridicule because I'd literally get in the pool and go quarter lap, jump out and go back and do my, you know, my little paddle about, you know, for a quarter of a lap and then go back and see if I can do a half a lap next time. So, um, but I was the first in my family to learn how to swim. We didn't, we were not swimmers. Um, so that was, um, and it's been, a, you know, a strange source of pride later that uh, at that age doing that. So. so what did that tell you as a learner, as an adult learner? Because many students that uh, you would deal with in, in your part of the, the university are adult learners. So what did it tell you about adult learning that you, that frames some of your thinking about delivering programs for adult learners? Well, I think one of the things I was, I was fortunate to have very loving, supportive parents. Uh, my dad was a pretty good basketball player in his own right. Um, and there was certainly encouragement at, at a young age and support at, an, at a young age. And I don't know if I had an innate competitiveness or I, I developed that over time, but there was an environment of, there was an environment of support there. And, and so I, you know, I kind of learned there that I, I think one of the struggles for so many adult learners is that um, there either, if there was support early in life, there's no, there's not much support now. If there wasn't support, how do you learn how to do that? And, you know, I think the evidence is for many, especially non-degree completers, 
is that life gets in the way. You know, the car breaks down or the kids get sick. And then we did some studies at Pearson where we were shocked to find that when we looked at students who dropped, frequently as much as 50% had GPAs or grade point averages over three. It wasn't because they couldn't do the work. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get to work or they couldn't, you know, do the daycare and stuff. They didn't have support or they found a rough spot and there was nobody there to give them encouragement to say, you can do it. And here's some resources. I'm going to be there to help you. And so um wasn't a lack of ability, which, um, you know, being fortunate to have had a lot of that, um, you know, I, I also realize in the, in the modern university, frequently a student will, um, and you see this a lot in people of diverse backgrounds, they go to college as a freshman, and they just don't, I don't know if it's culturally fit in, or they just have never had that kind of support, and they drop, and they drop like crazy, you know, or something happens in their life, and they drop, and um you know, you want to give people that opportunity, um, you know, and, you know, I also remember in, in my college days, if you want to get something done, it's like, all right, go to the bursar, go to the registrar, go to your professor, maybe his office hours, oh, he's not here today, um, go over here, nobody responded, oh, they, they they can't find the form over here, you know, uh, who's going to help me with, you know, setting up my financial aid, oh, we have a thing in the U.S. called the FAFSA, which is the most complicated financial aid form you've ever seen, it's actually meant for people not to be able to fill it out, and from in my, you know, I filled it out, and i think I'm can reasonably confident in these things. It was hard. Um, so all those, all those obstacles are non-academic. Many of those are non-academic. And so my, you know, my thinking about this is how do you begin for, you know, not all students are monolithic, right? We have different needs of different types of students. And so how to, for that student where life gets in the way and they may not have the right supports, how do you build a supportive um, educational system so that Things like um, academic help and uh, mentoring or choosing which courses they take. And a lot of the admin stuff is not hard, right? It's easy and accessible. And maybe the curriculum continues to be challenging. It should be challenging. But all that other stuff, um, you, you, you give support and aid there. And I think that makes a huge difference in terms of completion rates and people getting through. When you think back about on your own experience, and you've sort of mentioned a few things there about your own experience as a, as a student, what what was your student experience like? And where, where did you go to school? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> uh, I went to Rutgers initially. Um, mm-hmm. I got into a bunch of, di- my, my dad my dad worked in a warehouse. So we I got in some other places, um, a couple of Ivy Leagues places and stuff, but um, I got a partial scholarship to go to Rutgers. So that's where we we're going to go as Rutgers. And so I spent a couple of years there. And then my parents moved to Ohio. My dad got ill. And so I transferred to the College of Worcester, which is a small liberal arts college, which is closer to my to my parents. Um, and to be honest, I, I visited Kenyon and Oberlin at the same time. And the only reason I chose Worcester was about 20 miles closer. And uh, it was a sunny day when I visited. So Sometimes the minds, sometimes the mind of a, of many twenty year olds are not exactly the most uh, precise uh, things in the world, and mine certainly wasn't. Um, I would have to say that I was an episodic student. Um, I would say that I think I actually ended up on probation a couple of times and dean's list a few times. So it depended on the amount of attention I was giving in a particular. I never felt like I couldn't get really good grades. I just wasn't always um, engaged at, at, at certain points. And so, you know, straight A's, a couple of D's and an F. <laughs> so go figure. So, 
I mean, you, you talked about that sort of support for students. Being a, a small liberal arts college, there it, it would have been quite a personalised experience. Yes. Whereas at UMass, something quite different. Yes. Interestingly, you know, mass as in massification to as opposed to Massachusetts. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, and Rutgers was quite different. It's a it's a state it's a state university in New Jersey, and yeah. um, at the time, um, we had a lot of uh, intro lecture classes where there were two, three hundred, four hundred students, and and you you know the lectures had been pre recorded from the prior year, and they were given again, and, and they were in the library, and um, and then going to I mean I remember missing class at Rutgers. I was on the basketball team. No one seemed to care, right? You know. I remember missing class at Worcester and the coach came up and said, you missed class today. And I'm like, yeah, so what? <laughs> he says, we don't miss class here. And I was like, all right, I can live with that. That's, you know, I, I probably need that. That's good. Um, but it was, it was a much smaller class environment. Um, Worcester is actually, um, one of the things it's known for is its undergraduate teaching. It's one of the, one of the highest ranks uh, schools with, for undergraduate teaching. So they were very good at undergraduate teaching. We were required um, to do um, essentially a thesis, um, mm -hmm. an undergraduate, um, a junior and a senior thesis, which I think is a little unusual. Um, and a high percentage of students from Worcester do go on to do graduate work. So that was um, that, that was a that was a better experience for me, much more engaged experience. Mm -hmm. So if we just move on to your your career, and you've had a career in the corporate world. Clearly successful. Judith, Judith, by the way, this is awfully indulgent on my part to actually talk about myself this much. <laughs> I know, and I'm really good at asking people questions. Uh, I just that's I don't usually do this. So anyway. <laughs> no, I don't either. But I mean, you've got a great story to tell. And that that's why, you know, I'm I'm really wanting to pursue this because I mean, when I was working at the University of Sydney, we had a uh, the, the the chief financial officer came from the corporate world rather than coming up from within the university. And the transition of many people from the corporate world into the university, they struggle a bit. Yes. Because universities operate with glacial speed. Mm. They do. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing about your sort of observations about higher education and universities through the lens of being a, a successful corporate person. And the paradox is universities educate people to be successful in the corporate world. Yes. But there's a little bit of a, a misalignment sometimes. Uh, quite a bit of misalignment. Um, I actually, uh, you know, my, my experience at Pearson was initially, the management team was largely US-based. My last three, four, five years there, the management team was essentially uh, British-based. Um, I've often said that prepared me for a more political environment than um on on the corporate side um the brits were all about i mean i there was very much a, a very much a class structure there we had a lot of folks from oxford and cambridge so there was um it moved glacially at times and it had a lot of process right and so that you know and then there were people stabbing each other all the time too so that's you know you you learn that kind of thing i think the the pace thing was interesting um I, one of the most striking things was in a, in a very early meeting at the university, the conversation was almost always about revenue at the senior levels. We were talking, and we weren't really talking about student performance or this or that. It was about revenue. And I thought, you know, at my last days at Pearson, we were always talking about 
student efficacy and outcomes. And I thought that was the most ironic thing of all. In the corporate world, all we talked about was how do we get better measurable outcomes? I go over here and we're talking about how do we get more revenue? And I thought there's probably some balance in between these two approaches that, that would be appropriate. So that was the first thing I noticed. Um, I, you know, I worked in a large public institution um, and it's, you know, the, the people that work there are part of the state employee system and it, it has its own pace. It, I mean, it absolutely has its own pace and it has its own motivations around individual motivations. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how long you have to go until you get your pension or, or those kind of things, which is, you know, a dwindling uh, benefit in the United States. And, you know, so it's, a, it's kind of a special thing. Um, I was fortunate that I have the backing of the chairman of the board to start a new college. And, you know, um, he was really hell bent on getting something innovative done for the university and put it in everybody's goals and plans. So I had this mandate to do that. So most of what I ran into that was, was the, uh, um, the underground subterfuge that occurs in universities, the continual undermining and and slowing things up. And so there were many times where something would get stuck or somebody didn't want to do it. And there was uh, actually, there's quite a bit of status quo in a major university. And there was really, I mean, we like to talk about innovation and why we, you know, we do all this progressive stuff, but actually it's a, it's a very static organization in many ways. And there was a real resistance, um, I mean, not on the research side, but in the general operation of the university. And so there was a real resistance to um, doing something new. And there was a lot of, you know, political backbiting and a political fighting and uh, that would go on. But it was always, I mean, I don't, I would not have survived if the, if the chairman had not been um, fully embracing change. And I've, you know, when I was on the Pearson side, we helped institutions and presidents do things you know, like built online programs on them, they, it, it always failed if you didn't have a senior leader who was very strong and would stay the course. Mm -hmm. Politics mm -hmm. would get you every time, you know, and they just wait you out um, or slow you up or, you know, cut your resources. So that was really super helpful is to have that kind of, that kind of support. The other, I did a couple of things I thought that were, that were helpful. Um, I didn't take the job until I got a guarantee that I could hire a consulting firm mm -hmm. um, to do an analysis because I also knew from experience that no one would believe me or they would, you know, if the facts aren't on your side, you attack the person. If the person's okay, then attack the process, whatever the politics are there. And so I, I, I knew that if a consulting firm told them it was true or two consulting, then it would probably, it would stick. And so I did that early on and, they came up with a proper analysis of how we need to innovate. And we went ahead and did that. And um, the next year was funny. It became the, uh, the, the soup du jour. Everybody was hiring consulting firms to make their argument um, internally. So that was, in, in fact, the folks I hired. So they were very thankful. Um, so people do learn. Um, but I made sure that that was set up so that we could actually tell the story there and, and have that kind of background. Uh, and then we hired, um, we made sure that we brought on early on specialist in online education and marketing. And I early on hired a crisis PR firm because I could see that there were going to be, you know, issues either real or made up. And we were going to have to have a very good story uh, around that. So we also got a lot of expertise lined up to, to move ahead. Um, 
which is very, at the end of the day, was very helpful. So you, I mean, very few people in higher education have the opportunity to start something new, particularly at the whole of organizational level. Yeah. Tell me what the big lessons have been that you've learned and what advice you would give to some newcomer that was setting up a new institution somewhere. Yeah, well, I, I did take a business from 20 million to 800 million before, and I took a business from 100 million to 500 million. So I had a little bit of experience about scaling and growing and what it took to actually, because the corporations are not immune from status quo thinking. And, you know, Clayton Christensen wrote one book about it that, you know, is, is the kind of the Bible on innovation. And you can't actually take legacy businesses and do innovation. So that's, that was one of our theses is that we had to, we had to, had to break it out and do something um, entirely different. Um, my, you know, one of the things I would say is um, give a lot of thought, you know, uh, it's kind of the um, ounce of prevention um, versus the pound of cure. Give a lot of thoughts in the institution as to where, where the opposition is going to come from, where the support's going to come from, where the opposition is going to come from, Get your messaging right about why you're doing this and and um, and how you're going to go about this. Make sure you shored up senior leadership. I, I do think one of the problems in institution is uh, institutional turnover. You know, one president might have gung ho, they're gone. Next thing, <laughs> everybody the knives are out and you're and you're done. And so I think pick, figuring out your support base um, and getting that solidified. Um, one of the things that I, and, you know, and this is, this will sound strange coming from the corporate commercial person, but one of the things I insisted upon, which I thought we were really as an institution, not great at was focusing on the learner and why we're doing this and the mission. And I said, everything we say about, I mean, my the first day I came out and, uh, there was a, someone spoke to the Boston globe and they said, well, we're doing this to make $400 million. And I just, I threw a nutty. I said, no, I said, we are. The mission defines us. Any operating margin we make will sustain us, but focus on the mission. The mission is to help more working adults get degrees. If we do that well, we will grow. We'll grow by quite a bit, but mm -hmm. really you can never get lost. And so my, my advice to people is figure out what that mission is and default to that on a regular basis. It is really hard for critics to say, like we would frequently say, how are we going to serve the 35-year-old working mother, uh, single mom, has two jobs, wants to study at 10 p.m., your help desk closes at four. And every one of you professors create a different environment for your course that she's trying to figure out between midnight and 1 a.m. before she gets up and goes to work again and takes the kids. You need to, you need to if, if you can't, if your educational model, which is built on faculty autonomy, does not serve that students. We need a different model for that kind of student. That doesn't mean your model is wrong or bad. It just doesn't work for this student. So let's create something that works for this student so they can move ahead. And that's really, that's the kind of talk that we, and we didn't always get, get across our message, but that was, I mean, I, I do believe that message. That, that's the other advantage is if, you, if you're working on that message and you're working on this um, and you don't believe it or it has holes in it, you got a problem. Mm -hmm. So really test those kind of arguments as well. So can we just develop that? How do you support students and how would students describe their experience both at UMass Online and the, the college in, in, in uh, California? Yeah, I think the majority of students at, at UMass, the, the public uh, university, 
are still um, on-ground hybrid students who take some courses online, with the exception, I think, of that we have an MBA program out at the, at the flagship, and that's fully online. But, you know, that's, those students are, you know, it's like I had a friend tell me at Harvard that they had no trouble during COVID going to online. And I said, well, you, you chose the best students in the world. You can give them any environment. They're going to succeed. I mean, um, and there's a little bit of that, I think, in the uh, in the MBA program where they have very, very good students. But most of the students in the regular university are taking some courses online and and many on ground and kind of mixing it up. Um, you know, I'm one who actually thinks that, that the discussion of on ground, hybrid and online is a little bit dated as a conversation. I think this is all about digital trans general digital journeys and digital transformation. And on the one hand, you have analog face to face and machine learning. And it's not that you have to be on either side. You have to just figure out where you want to be on that to serve students better. And you can be way over here if you want that, if that's that fits your student body. Or you can move as more skills-based or whatever. You can move more towards machine learning or using that kind of that kind of environment to help students. But I think you, you know, all along that line, there are um, appropriate places to be. I contrast that with many of the um fully online programs in the US today where you have um uh standardized curriculum. So there are people with PhDs and master's degrees in instructional design and curriculum development, and they develop templates for these that that um, that standardize these in around best practices. And there are best practices around creation of curriculum. Um, and then you then then faculty are really subject matter experts to make sure that the subject matter is correct and accurate and and compelling, et cetera. But they fill those into these shells that are that are templates essentially. Um, and you also begin to use best practices around assessment if you want to have an online program. So there are best practices around that. And you should have an assessment strategy. You shouldn't leave it to, um, I'm not going to, uh, Professor X, who's in discipline Y, who has never actually studied how to do an online program or an assessment at all. I mean, that's, um, that's a disservice to a student out there. So you begin to frame up the standardization that makes this um, adds efficacy, I think, to the whole environment. Um, and then the faculty are added into as subject matter experts to make that work. The other benefit to that is, and, and I think you build those courses with outcomes first, measurable outcomes backward. And then you can begin to, with through your assessments, to measure through those outcomes. And in real time, rather than, oh, gee, we got to the final, they failed the final, done, right? You can maybe say early on, I think we're struggling here. I remember at Pearson, we started doing some of this stuff and uh, we had we had big textbook business and we found one book was online and we found that students were really struggling with chapter four. And we said, why don't we find out why they're struggling with chapter four? And we went back and we realized that it was written in a different grade level and was just not as good as mm -hmm. the rest of the chapters there. And that's why students were failing assessments. And we went back and we were able to actually rectify that. And then everything worked a little bit better. So that kind of continuous feedback um, allows you to also improve the learning environment for students. And then I think the other thing about that, you know, these online programs beginning to do is collect the kind of data that you can do, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm cognizant that many universities are filtering out students as much as anything, right? They're you know, the, the medical programs, they're saying, you're good enough, you're not good enough, they're filtering around. 
you know, we're, these programs are actually more about mastery. How do we get as many people to learn the subject matter and get through? And, um, and as you collect this data, you can begin to see patterns that will allow you to um, have interventions, predictive analytics. And so you can say, you know, the following three red lights went off, uh, the assessment, missed a class, and so-and-so. Our data says 67% chance of dropping in the next week. We should probably call to see if we can help, see what's up, right? And those interventions do make a difference. And so, you know, and the other the other piece of that is the is the whole, and these online, is the support piece. So when you show an interest in a school, you call, and a lot of them use what's called, you know, you'll hate this term, one-stop shopping. And that's the person will actually help you with the financial aid, will actually walk you through what course of study you and how you set your programs up. Um, any other um, logistics you need to figure out, um, we'll do that. And we'll, and frequently in some of those programs, we'll stay with you throughout your whole um, college experience, right? Or you'll be handed off to somebody who'll stay with your whole college experience and always be there and continue to track. And, and these support services that are informed by this data and, um, and are set up, they should be, they should run on for working adults on um, at least 18, seven, if not 24, seven, um, mm -hmm. because they study in different times. And as I said, we have a, I'm aware of a school. I won't say we have I'm aware of a school that has three people in its support office and they work from uh, nine to four. Mm -hmm. Now working adults work from nine to four. So that's not particularly helpful. So yeah. I think that's a, that's a big difference. The other thing about these online programs are there are specializing in degrees that get people one of three things, either an interview, a job, or a promotion. Mm -hmm. And it, it's less of a liberal arts degree. It's more of, I'm 35 years old. I got two kids. I need to get a promotion. And I need to get that. And I need to be, I need to finish my nursing degree so I can get a raise so that, you know, I can afford to fix the car. I mean, whatever. And so um, it's really focused on those, um, on getting people, you know, interviews, jobs, and promotions. And so the, the programs match that as well. So Don, the topic of, of this um, podcast is reimagining higher education. Chat GPT, machine learning, artificial intelligence, there's not one day in the past six weeks where we haven't read about that. Can you talk to me just briefly about your reimagining higher education in the context of these sort of major transformative moments? Well, this is timely. I was on a panel. Um, for some reason, they thought I could speak to this yesterday, last night in New York. So um, it, it's, uh, it's a timely conversation. Um, I <laughs> There's considerable discussion about AI right now and considerable disagreement. I'm of the camp that this has the potential to change everything. And the, I'm of the camp that this is more akin to the steam engine than to enhance search. Someone said it the other day, I'm like, no, I don't think so. I mean, you're talking about neural networks that are layered that are actually beginning to, to you know, in many ways approximate thinking. Um, and it's quite different. And is it there yet? And do you have hallucinations? Is it not tuned up properly? Sure. Go back and look at, you know, video games in the 1970s, the Atari games and missile command and stuff that, you know, come a little ways from there. Um, this will change, um, dramatically. I think you're, you're gonna, um, 
see robotics and game uh, gaming uh, combine with AI, and that's going to be a strange world as well. Um, I think the AI, there are a number of people, a lot smarter than me, and I was surprised at how many of them are saying it, that there's a potential for AI to be existential. And mm. I think it's something, you know, um, I think it's something to really think hard about. Um, and there are a lot of really very, I mean, when there are certain people that I that I consider to be fairly uh, modest and conservative, um, saying this this could really be something, <laughs> you know. I start listening, and I think it's a, it's a good point. I think short term, I think um, people in service positions, customer service, uh, potentially knowledge jobs, um, all are at risk of losing their job, mm-hmm. um, and. I think the implication ha- for universities is it's twofold. One is we got a lot of support people, a lot of people to do this kind of stuff. And, you know, is this the, you know, what do we do with this, this thing that could actually, I mean, I saw a study the other day, which is fascinating. It, it was, um, they did a test on customer service with, I think it was chat GPT and, uh, and humans. And uh, it was, it was more accurate than chat GPT, but here's the interesting thing. 76% of the respondents thought it was more empathetic. That's interesting. Yeah. And because it doesn't have a bad day, it knows how to respond promptly. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't hang up on you. It doesn't, all those human things that, you know, are not particularly sometimes empathetic. And so I thought that was fascinating. So I think short term, there'll be pro, there'll be opportunities for productivity gains, pretty massive uh, potential job loss um, out there. You know, um, how does that dovetail into the things we teach? I think it probably directly dovetails into some of the things we teach. Um, you know, there is the, well, every time there's a new technology, there's new jobs created. And the only one I've heard so far is more software engineers and prompt engineers. I, you know, I think what's different here is this is the first time I mean, we didn't replace, you know, the railroad with something. We were really replacing in many ways humans. Mm-hmm with quote unquote superior humans for these tasks. They don't get tired, they don't break down, they work 24 seven, they're, you know. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I feel sad about that, but I, and I, I realize potential for a significant job loss across the board. And I think as, as universities think about this, they're gonna have to keep an eye on the jobs of the future. What are we doing with, I mean, it may be a future where there's just so much less work that, um, we all get a check from the government and we all go back and take art classes, you know, because we have all this free time to do that. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I do think it's going to be fundamentally change everything. And I think it's, um, um, I've been looking, uh, I was out of Google a few weeks ago, looking at some of the advanced stuff they're working on. It, it, it's, um, it's something, it's something else. Um, I was with a lawyer friend of mine and the lawyer friend, I said, give me a problem you're working on. And we put it into one of these programs and they came up with a synopsis. She said, this is really good. I was going to have to reach 20 pages tonight. I said, yeah. So this is going to be a great productivity tool for you until it eats your lunch. And she said, that's probably right. But learning is essentially social as well. And I mean, students go to college, not only to get a qualification, mm-hmm. um, they make friendships for life. Yes. So does it also mean that universities have to rethink the student experience? Well, I earlier said there's probably room for multiple educational models. 
And mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. I think there's a social emotional um, aspect to college and the maturation process that takes place there. And um, that's, that's frankly wonderful. Um, not scalable, not scalable to a population that, that has, you know, working, working adults and, you know, unless you're going to pay them for time, pay them for time off. And, you know, I mean, I just don't, I, it's just not realistic for many working adults to be able to participate in that dream. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think to that point there, I think there will still be an Ivy league. There will still be, you know, an Amherst and Oxford or Cambridge. Um, but I do think that, you know, there will be continuing cropping up of educational access and opportunities for underserved populations. Um, and also people who are um, either um, who, who are basically diverse backgrounds. I think it'll be, it'll also be beneficial that um, we still have under-enrolled rates for um, black and brown people in the United States. And I, you know, and we still have um, um, over 30 million people who started some college and didn't complete. My, my last question is, um, what advice would you give to the next generation of university leaders and administrators? I don't know. <laughs> Not sure they want my advice, but... Um, my my advice would be, and I, I think everybody would say they're doing it, but I'm not sure they're all doing it. But what does it really mean to be truly student focused? And in your mission, who are you really serving? And if you're really serving X student population, what does it mean to do that? Um, I am of the opinion that most universities around the country here in the States are, um, frankly, faculty focused, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you ask them, they'll give you a tautology. You know, they'll say, well, I am good because I am. Um, you know, I, I, I am quality. <laughs> it's like, how did you measure that? You know, how did that how did that work out? You never went you never as a professor, you never got taught how to teach. Right. You never went to you know, like a, like a K-12 student uh, teacher. Um, you are sage on the stage that we can take that back to 1600. That's pretty good. Um, how does that, you don't have any measurements other than your midterm final. And again, how do you know you're, you know, how do you know you're a good teacher? And so I, I think leaders can, you know, should focus on their mission of serving and how they do that better. And, uh, and it may be also that they're not serving really come to grips that they're not serving all people. Like I keep on telling the university, you're not serving these working adults. You serve some of them. I mean, it's not like it's, again, it's not all or nothing on the working adult side, but you're not serving the entire population. You're only serving this segment over here who can get to the classroom or who has the wherewithal to do X. But there's, and maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you shouldn't be making that hard choice and, uh, and focusing in on that. But that would, that would be the that would be the biggest thing. I, I think the other thing I would tell leaders is to look is to look real hard at the institution for viability. I mean, I, I I'm of the opinion in the United States that there's overcapacity of higher education right now. Um, if you're a small liberal arts school that does not have a niche, a large endowment, um, some some special something special about you, even a special brand, you're in trouble. 
you're in trouble. And there's, unfortunately, many schools are going to be looking to merge or, or stop um, coming up. And they all got a break during COVID because they get a lot of federal money and uh, you could borrow money at 2%, 3%, but that's gone. And so that's the other thing is what's, what's, what's viable. And, the, and yes, I, now I have lots of things to tell them. The other thing I would tell you is if you want to do something new, um, break it out from the regular organization, give it some autonomy, give it some independence. One of the things we did with UMass Global is we set it up as a private university um, affiliated with the public because we knew that it, once we started touching it, we wouldn't stop at the public. And we didn't think that was probably, that was going to be good for an innovative place. So it has its own board, has its own board of regents and it has autonomy to do some things. So that would be my other advice. You want to do something different, break it out somehow and uh, um, give it enough resources. Because the argument would always be, well, these resources should go to the status quo. Well, that's always true until the day it isn't. And the switch on disruption flips and you've got a problem. So that would be my, anyway, that's probably enough for a day. Oh, and what a, and, but what a great way to complete our conversation. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation as much as I have. And, and it's been very different from other ones because I've just gone with the flow. But your story is a fabulous story and your insights have been really useful, particularly from this side of the Pacific. Well, Judith, it, it has been a pleasure to engage with you. You're, you are wonderful. Every time engagement I've had has been wonderful. And, and uh, thank you for spending time this evening. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.